Welcome to Magic Numbers, this is episode number 76, and today we're going to be talking about learning from the best. So we're going to try to look at the data of the 17 Lens users from the top tier, uh, from the March of the Machine Draft, and we're going to compare their data with the data of players who are not in the top tier and see what differences uh, are there and why, maybe. Uh, and also we're going to talk a bit about um, why not always the best idea to listen to the advice of top players when you are not one of them. Uh, but before we go into this, uh, this show is brought to you by mtgazone.com, um, the place to get your MTGA information, uh, all the constructed stuff that uh, I care very little about, but uh, sometimes use it when I have to play in some constructed tournament and want to neck deck. Uh, my articles, J2S Josh is also writing on Limited, so uh, pop in there and uh, click on my articles so that they think I'm useful. Um, but it's also not. It's also brought by the Patreon users, and I have actually two patrons uh, to report this uh, week. Uh, first of them is Arya. Thank you very much, Arya, for uh, for kind message also that came together with the patronage. And the second patron is uh, Naninman. Uh, so thank you both. Uh, and uh, yeah, let's go on with it. So first, before I start uh, the actual main topic, I always start with a preamble. And today's preamble is linked to the topic of the episode, and uh, it is basically that leveling up and limited uh, equals learning new card-specific play patterns. And you know, especially if you listen to Cortecol's podcast, which is dedicated to leveling up, uh, you know the concept of leveling up and limited. And I just thought that most of the time, when you level up, you just learn a new way of uh, interacting with the cards that was not open to you before. So you learn that cards have multiple uses. You learn that mana bases can be built in better way or worse way. You learn a lot of those things. But the problem with that is that very often advanced players will tell about certain play patterns you might not be yet ready uh, to accommodate. Because in order to understand them fully and to use them properly, you need the prior knowledge. And uh, because of that, sometimes advanced, um, like this podcast very much is, um, advanced uh, approach to limited can be confusing. And because it's confusing and because you don't know steps that you need to uh, know before you uh, actually uh, accommodate them, you might uh, actually have a drop in your win rate just by listening to the top players. So, for example, if you don't know how to play with a particular card like a Faras Dispersal and you put in your deck because, um, uh, because people tell you that this is a great card, you might not maximize its value. And actually, it might be detrimental to you because you will be playing with card uh, in a bad way. So in order to fully utilize all the kind of level ups, you need to make sure that you have the baseline. And this is very important. If you want to learn, you need to correctly identify where you are in your learning curve. And if you correctly identify in your learning curve, then with the help of data and with the help of you know experience of people that give coaching, you can get what are your priorities in a given moment in learning how to play uh, limited? So for example, if you're a player that has 45% win rate on Arena, uh, several of the best cards will probably not do you very well. Today, we're going to actually look at those cards. So we're going to look at the cards that have the biggest delta between the win rate from the best players and the players in the lower tier, and basically try to figure out 
what makes those cards so tricky to play and, 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 and what abilities do you need to have to fully utilize them. Um, so there goes the preamble. And now we can move to the patron question of the week. And uh, this is from one of my newer patrons, uh, Mario, um, who asks, does Arena match similar decks more often? And that's a very good question because as much as I hate Shuffler Truther's questions because uh, they're usually loaded and um, I did a lot of stuff on the Shuffler and showed that it works as it should um, and still get the questions. Arena matchmaking is not exactly a known uh, entity on how it works and there must be some uh, weird way, weird things going on in there. So it's always nice to uh, explore this data set. Um, so um, I decided to answer this question quite thoroughly and maybe tomorrow I'll put a small thread on Twitter to uh, explain what I found. But there are a couple of steps uh, you need to make to do this analysis. And uh, because there is still no uh, March of the Machine data, I did it based on one data. Uh, and I did it on games between two color decks. And I only took into account games with duration of uh, over five turns for a very simple reason. Um, 17 lens data does not know the deck of the opponent. So it only estimates what kind of um, uh, what kind of deck it is playing based on the cards it's, it, it, it has seen. And obviously in shorter games, you might not see the lines of one color and thinks it's a monocolor deck that you, you're playing against because just, you know, you saw four planes and then the game finished. It might have been due to the color screw and, uh, and not because you were playing a monocolor deck. Um, so after all those limitations were taken into account, I uh, had around 420,000 games in total, and I uh, looked at those. Uh, so what do we expect? So first thing to even start answering the question is to figure out what do we expect from the matchmaking um, uh, algorithm to, to do there. And you know what we would expect that if you're being paired with a deck, uh, it's going to be more or less what you would expect by pure chance. Uh, if anything goes outside of that pure chance, then uh, we might see that there might be some bias in the matchmaking. The first thing to do is to calculate the frequency of playing each color pair by 17 lens users, and then also calculate the frequency of playing each color pair by the opponents of 17 lens users, because these groups are not very much similar, because 17 lens users have a 56% win rate, which means that the non-17 lens users uh, in that data set have around 44% win rate, which means they are very different groups of people which means that they will probably also play very different decks. So um, if you look at it um, uh, throughout all the color pairs, you see that, uh, for example, 17 lens users played much more of the Gruel decks in, in one. Uh, difference was of around um, six percentage points, which is quite a lot. Um, the opponents were more frequently playing Orzov. They were more frequently playing Golgari. Um, and other colors, uh, blue-black was also played more by the opponents, and, and other ones were sort of similar. You could see maybe a bit more Boros in, uh, in 17 lens user cohort. But basically, because we have those numbers, second thing we can do is we can calculate the expected matching frequency based on those numbers from step one, uh, which means that, for example, uh, if I'm playing red-green and I will be playing, uh, there, there is a... Uh, 0.24 times 0.15 times uh, uh, chance of, of, of being matched up with uh, white-black. And you can calculate that for all the color combinations, uh, and which I did here. I mean, I don't want you to read those numbers because they are meaningless, but for example, you can see that because red-green was the most played color uh, in both uh, cohorts, there is around 4%, 4.3% chance of playing uh, a red-green uh, mirror matchup. 
And um, this is what we are expecting to see. Um, but of course, this doesn't tell us anything. It just tells you what we would expect to see. We need to also uh, analyze what we actually do see. So now we have to calculate the real matching frequency. And this I did using the data set. I just basically checked what are the odds of playing each deck uh, as it happened. And then I have a second table um, where uh, I calculated how many, what percentage of the games between two color uh, decks uh, were particular uh, matchups. And for, for example, you see that uh, red-green mirror matchups were around 4.48% of the time, which is relatively close to, uh, uh, to the theoretical value that we had from the first part. So now what, what, what we can do is we can compare the two. And again, I don't want you to look in those numbers because uh, it won't tell you much, but even by the coloring pattern that I uh, cunningly applied on the table, you can see that they look very similar to each other. Um, so we can probably say that the matchmaking uh, algorithm does not um, bias towards one color or the other. But in order, in order to really look at um, how consistent is that, uh, you can actually plot those against each other. So I can plot the uh, the data that I found uh, in theoretical numbers and in the practical numbers, and I can align them in a scatter plot uh, and look at them like this. So this is exactly what 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 happens. Um, as you can see, it almost forms a straight line, which is in really impressive, to be fair. Um, there are two things I would like to draw your attention to. First of all is the equation that this thing uh, happens, uh, uh, the trend line uh, follows. And um, the important part is that the thing before the x is almost equal 1. So basically what it means that it's almost 1 to 1, as you would expect. Uh, second thing is that... Uh, there is a modification to the line, but it's minuscule. It's like 0. 0.00006. Um, so it's basically a one-to-one -one line, as you would expect. And that the R squared of this um, relation between the, um, the observed matchup frequency and the expected matchup frequency is roughly 0.9988, which means the closer to one it is, the more likely that uh, what we expect is what we observe. So. Um, yeah, so um, basically what these data show is that um, almost one-to-one, -one, you're going to be matched up with what would be expected by the frequency of your opponents, uh, which is a great confirmation that the matchmaking algorithm does not look at the color pairs. But I can't really look at it through the numbers because I don't know the decks that the, seven, that the opponents of 17 Lands um, uh, users were playing, but we can sort of guess that also the matching uh, is not based on the strength of the deck. Because if it was, you would expect some deviations from that uh, observed frequency because some color pairs were much stronger than the others. So um, it's pretty much pretty much certain, really, that uh, the matchmaking is absolutely random uh, based on what people are playing rather than uh, what is stronger. This is based on the best of one data. So there is a rank involved uh, and Probably you could look deeper into that and looking the matching uh, frequencies by rank, which I did not do because this um, uh, 0.9988 R squared of the of, of, of the line that I got is uh, so convincing that I decided that this um, this kills my curiosity at this spot here, and I will just conclude: no matchmaking uh, algorithm does not prefer matching particular decks with each other. And um, although it might seem so sometimes because you get paired with like three decks of the same color in a row and you think, ah, 
uh, must be something with the matchmaking. But very often it is just um, uh, it is just um, just a random situation that you were uh, that you encountered in this particular spot. And no, I was not paid by WhatsApp to do that. Um, I'm pretty sure that it would be uh, a very bad spending of money from their side because uh, people that want to believe that the matchmaker is out to get them will still believe it despite my best efforts to shield. All right, so let's move to the main topic. Thank you, Mario, for the question. That was actually a very good one, and I had lots of fun to analyze it. Um, the question that I want to start the presentation with is, is it a good idea to learn from the best? And I picked this card for at least four different reasons to, uh, uh, to be on this slide. I picked Fairy Mastermind, uh, the uh, Yuta Takahashi uh, um, World Championship card. First, because uh, it's a rogue. And Rogues actually is an archetype and constructed that gave me idea for this episode. Because a couple of years ago when Rogues were a pretty strong archetype, um, there was a lot of speculation on podcasts about constructed that I listened to for no apparent reason, um, that Rogues have a poor win rate when you look at the data from uh, tournaments, but actually it always does better in, in those big kind of pro tour-like uh, tournaments because the players who um, play in those tournaments are really good and therefore, they play with rogues much better. And the, the conclusion was that uh, rogues is a deck that uh, the generic win rate does not tell you much about because if you're a really strong rogues player, uh, you sort of um, um, you sort of win much more than the average uh, than the average uh, player would. Um, second of all, um, I picked it because it has the mastermind in its name, uh, and of course, the best players are sort of masterminds. And third. Uh, I chose it because this is actually one of those cards in this format that has a uh, highest uh, gain between um, best players playing it and 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 the lower tier players uh, playing it. So this is a card that actually uh, actively uh, is better when better players play with it. So uh, there we go. Uh, also, I find this card pretty cool, and I love playing it myself. I had it in a couple of drafts, and every single time it was. Basically, a two mana draw a card uh, yeah, on ETB kind of creature, which is amazing. Um, all right, so let's move to the some data and uh, try to answer uh, the question that will be sort of like light motive of the uh, of the whole presentation. So first of all, uh, let's look at the data from how many colors should you be using, and 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 then try to see what what's going on in there. Um, this is the win rate by uh, tier of players and uh, red. Bars are top players, uh, blue bars are mid players, and gray bars are bottom players, uh, and the numbers of colors they play in the deck. So um, first thing that you can see is that um, two color decks are performing the best in all the color combinations, uh, in all the tiers of the players. 61% uh, win rate uh, of the top players, 56% win rate of the mid-range mid players, and 49.5% uh, win rate for the bottom tier. Um, but what you can see is that actually um, top players, they have quite consistent win rates across all the color combinations. So you have two colors, two colors in splash, three colors, three colors in splash, four colors and four colors in splash. Five color decks just didn't have enough of uh, a sample size to actually analyze it properly. But the difference here in this format between two color decks is and, and, and four color decks for the best players is just five percentage points. They still win 56% of their games when they have a four color and a splash deck. Um, um, Tom Turbo has a question. Could you remind us what win rate is considered top, medium, or bottom? 
Uh, it's just around 59% for the top tier or, 50, or around 60%. Uh, it has to be, um, um, it has to be at least in two of the last three sets also, the win rate has to be high to be considered top player. Um, and keep in mind, majority of the 17 lands players are actually in that top tier. Uh, so it's not like this is the, um, this is something rare to be in the top tier for 17 lens users. It's actually rare for the, the 17 lens users to be in those lower tiers. Um, and then uh, around 54% for the medium, medium and, and, and around 48% for the, for the bottom tier. Uh, that's, that's the rough numbers there for you. Uh, but okay, so uh, top tier players don't lose out much on adding colors to their deck. Um, medium um, uh, tier players, they are okay with doing splash and maybe playing three colors. But then there is a, actually quite a significant drop off when you look at the four colors and four colors and splash. And when you look at the bottom tier players, they start at 49.5 uh, and they stay till the three colors, three color maybe in splash, and there's a big drop off when they try to play four color and four color and splash. What this tells us that um, there is an additional level of difficulty when you're trying to play multiple colors and top players can accommodate for that. Uh, the lower tier uh, players can't. And that probably means that um, there are so many things that you need to take into consideration when you're playing multiple color decks and especially those five color decks. The quality of your uh, fixing, uh, the land base building, um, whether or not you want to actually start playing a particular card. So, uh, you know, um, there's many decisions that go into it and the top players, they do have enough experience to navigate those issues um, and have decent results even when you play four color decks. Uh, but when you're in the bottom tier, that's where the problems can start. You know, you, you can see that this um, win rate of the bottom tier players uh, in four color decks goes down to 27%. This is based on the smallish sample size uh, I would like to add. Um, but even for color splash 36.6, that's a big difference. So here we have 20 percentage points delta between the win rate of the uh, top and bottom tier at four color and splash and 30 percentage points uh, delta between the uh, top and bottom tiers in four color decks. Uh, while uh, if you look at the uh, two color decks, that delta is around 12 percentage points. So big difference uh, between those. Uh, and this tells us that, you know, if uh, you're listening to content that is aimed at top tier players, and you listened on how to build those multicolor decks and how multicolor decks are good, it does not necessarily mean that you'll be able to replicate that kind of uh, success when you are starting to draft multicolor decks. So if you are a beginner player, this kind of advice on playing multicolor deck might be uh, actually detrimental to your win rate. Okay, in the long term, when you learn how to play those, uh, it might be uh, beneficial, but maybe it's better not to start uh, drafting five color madness. Maybe it's better to start uh, thinking about how can I splash better? How can I do those three color decks, for example, when the uh, penalty for um, uh, your win rate is not going to be that great. And based on trying to build those five color decks, then try to start conceptualizing, okay, how would I need to change my gameplay to start playing those four color decks, five color decks. Um, and of course, it will take different times for different people to move from one tier to another, uh, but uh, you probably shouldn't just try to replicate uh, from the very basic level of understanding of limited, you shouldn't go into deeper concepts initially. Maybe you should first start to get your fundamentals, your super basic things. And in a second, we're going to look at which cards are the ones that you are having the most success with when you're playing on the uh, in that lower tier in terms of win rate. Uh, okay, so um, 
another thing, so how many colors to use, this is about frequency of using those colors. And this is a very small graph because there's so much data in it. But uh, generally, um, interestingly, actually, at least for me, is that uh, top tier players play strictly two color decks uh, less frequently than the other groups. It's very small difference, but you know, based on those sample sizes, it's actually probably significant difference. So you have like 56.6% .6 of the decks of top tier players is two color straight. And in terms of those uh, mid and bottom tiers, it's 58%. So um, fifth, uh, top tier players do seem to know that they are okay playing multicolors and, um, and, uh, and, 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 they, and they use it. Uh, what is interesting is that where does the difference come from? Uh, in terms of the middle tier players, the difference comes mainly from uh, playing fewer of those four, three, four, three or four color decks. Um, while in case of the bottom tier players, it comes mainly from them playing more of the three color decks. And what it means to me is that um, top tier players know exactly when they want to be two colors and they draft it when they, when they need to. Um, and sometimes they splash, but they want to sort of avoid playing the three color decks. That's only 11% of the time that they play them. Uh, it's around 13% for the, for the bottom tier players. Um, and in case of bottom tier players, uh, the three color deck might not be something that they choose by design, but it's something that they are forced into because they don't make enough playables um, in order to play two colors and splash or two colors. And that might be the reason. Well, when you look at the uh, three colors and splash, four color and five color decks, uh, you have a slight advantage of the... Uh, Mike, the, the reason why we don't look at the five color decks is that sample sizes were just so small that would just uh, model the things. I probably should have cut the monocolor decks as well because they don't they don't show anything useful in this deck, in this in this graph, uh, unlike, unlike those. And maybe cluster those in one bunch together as well. But, um, you know, th 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 there is like top tier players, they played three... Free and free and splash or more colors, uh, good twenty percent more frequently than uh, than the middle and the bottom tier, which uh, you know, it's still rarely, but it's twenty percent more more frequently than other groups. Um, splash on seventeen lands is two cards or fewer, and some mana sources that can accommodate for that color. Yeah, okay. Uh, so we can also look at the uh, color pair versus the skills. I'm just, I'm just trying to see. Maybe I mixed up some orders, but uh, I can work around that. Um, so as you can see, Demir is the top uh, winning archetype for the top players, uh, as you would expect. 63.7% average win rate. And then we have Azorius at 62. And then we have a drop to around 60 with Simic, Izzet, Golgari, and Ragdos. And then we have a drop to around 58, 57% win rate with Selesnya Boros, Gruul, and Orzov. Uh, what you can see is that, except for those two uh, top decks, Azorius and Demir, um, the difference is not so great. It's like three percentage points between Simic that's third and, and Orzov that is absolutely last. Pretty small uh, difference. Um, and you can see that sort of... Um, the mid-tier has similar uh, order. Uh, okay, Azorius is the top winning archetype for those. Uh, and then uh, Demir is also uh, second, quite far away from anything else. But then on third place, you have Golgari, which is, uh, which is only fifth in, um, in the uh, top tier. And actually, uh, Simic and Izzet are uh, quite lower uh, than uh, Golgari is at 54% win rate. So good four percentage points difference. Uh, almost 5% uh, percentage point difference between uh, Simic and Azorius, 
while in top tier, um, uh, it's only 1.5%. That's quite a large uh, delta there. Also, um, Rakdos is uh, doing relatively poor in those, um, those uh, mid-tier uh, group. When if you look at the um, bottom tier players, you see that, okay, Azorius is still the top uh, archetype for them, and it's definitely not Demir. Actually, um, both Golgari and Boros, weirdly, which is third from last in, in top tier, is third from first in, in, in the bottom tier. Um, so this sort of made me um, uh, make the analysis of trying to link uh, um, win rates of those um, uh, top and mid medium and top and bottom uh, uh, tiers uh, between each other. So basically, this is a correlation between them. Here you have the win rate of the medium uh, tier. Uh, here you have the win rate of the top tier uh, for each archetype. And I basically tried to see how well do they correspond with each other. And um, in terms of comparing top and mid players, uh, you see that it's close to one, this, this, this value here, the, uh, the, um, the slope of the curve, which is what you would expect if, if it sort of relates to each other. And the R squared is around 0.75, which is actually a good correlation between those two factors. So it means that if you win a lot in a particular color pair in the top tier, uh, you're, if you're in mid tier, you're probably going to be able to roughly replicate that kind of result. But when you look at the top to bottom color pair win rates, uh, this whole correlation completely uh, uh, disintegrates. And that means that, uh, first of all, the slope is different of this um, correlation. Now mind, this is based on 10 points, so uh, it's not like a super, uh, super large data set, but um, the slope is 0.5, so quite not one, uh, which means that uh, the link between uh, what you win is not that strong. So for example, the, the strongest archetypes in um, uh, in top players are going to be relatively weaker in, in, in those bottom tier group. And second of all, the R squared uh, is only 0.3, which means there is not that much correlation between what is good in top tier and what is good in the bottom tier. And here we see this Boros, for example, that is relatively poor in the top tier group, uh, being one of the best archetypes in, in the bottom tier. And that means to me, at least, that bottom players will benefit from completely different cards than the top tiers will. Uh, and because of that, uh, different archetypes will be strong for them. And uh, if you are in the bottom tier, which, uh, you know, there's no shame in that. Everyone was learning how to play limited and uh, we've all been in the bottom tier at some stage of our life. It means that you probably should reevaluate what is good for you and what do you want to learn and what will be the best pathway for you to learn. The problem, of course, with that is that usually the people that teach how to play limited are in the top tier and they might have difficulties in even understanding why central cards work for you because that they don't work for them because they can utilize a much more efficient strategy based on having a vast knowledge of the format. Uh, Isia MTG says, I would guess aggro cards do better with uh, low tier players. No, you're absolutely right. There's no shame uh, in aggro spikes uh, and you're absolutely right. Um, I am in top tier. Thank you very much, Van Wilder. Um, so um, that's one thing. Second thing I wanted to uh, look at was the uh, evaluation of what is good in the format. And to do that, uh, I correlated the win rate of archetypes with the number of times that this archetype was played in each uh, ability group. And then again, in the uh, top players um, group, there is almost a perfect correlation between what is good and how often it's being played. 
the R squared for that curve is 0.88, which you know, the closer to one it is, the, the more uh, strong the correlation between the number of times you play a particular archetype and, uh, and your win rate in it. Um, so as, as you can expect, top players know exactly what is good and they draft the good decks more frequently, not necessarily because they force it, but mainly because the cards in the good archetype, when they are open, they will pick them uh, early. And uh, uh, if you pick strong cards, uh, then, um, um, uh, then then you will end up in the best archetypes more frequently. Um, Luca is asking, is it necessarily a skill gap or could it be a metagame difference between Mythic and Silver? Now, this is something I can't really answer. And there definitely will be uh, an impact of both of those things. There will be also an impact of how your opponents play. If you play in Silver, uh, maybe a straightforward aggro strategy is going to be better than the uh, overly complicated um, strategy. You know, very often you will have um, very often you will have um, this kind of overplaying when you're playing against uh, maybe a, a more beginning player. Sometimes they'll just make a deck when they don't play something on turn four because of the uh, how the deck is constructed, and you are um, playing around cards that they don't have in their hand instead of just slamming it. And maybe a less experienced player will just slam things and um, and, and and win because of that because they don't overcomplicate the situation. Uh, because they maybe lack awareness that they might be playing around something. It is a possibility. Um, but okay, when we look at the frequency um, uh, uh, correlation between play frequency and win rate in the middle players, um, you still have a correlation that's quite strong, but it's uh, markedly weaker at 0.75, uh, which means that um, uh, those middle uh, tier players will uh, more frequently play weaker archetypes um, uh, because of personal preference, maybe, or, uh, or 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 because of some other reasons. What I see in this graph, actually, which is um, which is actually quite interesting, I see that the slope is much higher, and this to me tells that those middle tier players they know what is strong because they definitely play Azorius and, uh, and, and, and Dimir more frequently than uh, anything else, and they probably play it too frequently. This is a sign to me that uh, they might be forcing uh, more powerful archetypes and ignoring some of the uh, uh, lower power archetypes even when they are open, while top players don't make that mistake and they basically draft slightly more the hard way, which means that they do um, uh, look at what is open, and they do understand that um, even if you're in the one of the weaker archetypes, you still have a good chance of winning if that archetype is very open. And we can go back to the um, uh, previous one of the previous graphs. That's probably why their win rate when they are playing with those weaker archetypes is actually pretty decent because they do only draft those things when they are open, but when they are open, they do draft them. So when they get a couple of bombs in uh, in Boros, they will play Boros quite happily, and they will still get that 58% win rate. And um, uh, maybe the mid-tier mid players will just try to uh, draft Simic, for example, in this in this moment, um, uh, that is not open, and then have a 54% win rate uh, playing Simic because they uh, they heard it's strong, but, uh, but not necessarily. Uh, so that's one thing. Um, then when you look at the frequency of, of, of play to uh, to win rate at the bottom players, the correlation is really bad. So um, the R squared here is 0.2 compared to 0.88. That uh, uh, looks very much like a random kind of situation here, uh, which means that um, those bottom tier players, they draft what 
they want to draft probably um but what they want is uh maybe not very well aligned with what is strong in the format uh so yeah um i think that what this data shows that uh, first of all it's not only about recognizing what is good in the format it's also recognizing what is good in the particular pod and this is the difference between the top tier players and the middle tier players but also that it's very important to know what is good and that's what the difference between the bottom tier players and the middle and the top tier players is so uh in order of learning you probably should first know um uh what is good in the format and that will be enough to put you in this middle tier and then once you're in the middle tier what you should recognize is when to draft those uh, lower win rate color pairs when you know, when you can identify that they're open and you can benefit from uh, actually playing a weaker color pair that is uh, really open. Uh, it seems unusual that the top and bottom archetypes share a color. Is that historically unlikely? I don't think it is uh, historically unlikely, but um, I don't have that data on, on me. But uh, yeah, it is interesting that Orzov and... Uh, is the bottom color and Dimir is the top color, especially when Azorius is the second best, and uh, and it has uh, both of the uh, yeah. So there there are two different archetypes with white and black and top two, and then Orzov is uh, third. It might be something to do with general overdrafting of of those um, of white and black, and maybe maybe lower synergy level. It seems that blue is the main color, and then uh, black and white are great support colors but maybe white and black does not come together very well. Do we know the percentage of each group of players on 17 lands? Um, uh, give me a second. I can sort of sort of calculate it. Uh, pum, pum, pum. Oh, I love life calculations. There you go. Um, five, four, 54, 40. Come on. So it's around 40% are top players no no around yeah 45 percent are top players maybe like 35 percent are um um middle players and the bottom tier is around 25 percent did i get the numbers right 20 percent something like that something something around that the top players is the much bigger group than anything else then there's the middle tier and then there's the bottom tier okay we had this one okay so uh, what makes the difference and I'm going to look at uh, several aspects of it. Um, some of it is really easy to catch with data. Some of it is very hard to catch with data. But um, I think that in terms of the tiers, first thing that will make um, a difference is the play rate, so the card selection process. So um, what I mean by that is that some cards will be played much more by the top tier players. Some cards will be played much more frequently by the bottom uh, uh, players. Um, and that card selection will, of course, uh, result in different decks and different um, builds and in different win rates. Um, second um, will be win rate difference. So uh, even though you have this average, let's say, seven percentage point difference between the top tier and the bottom tier, some cards will have a much bigger or much smaller win rate between those tiers. And the cards that will have a much higher win rate difference will be probably the cards that are uh, uh, high uh, highly skill intensive um, because those top tier players will be able to benefit from them more or uh, alternatively because the players from uh, uh, the middle tiers uh, will not be able to uh, fully capitalize on the power of the card because of the um, uh, play patterns that they don't understand yet. And the third ability obviously is a play skill and that's the 
hardest thing to measure by numbers. Uh, we'll try to maybe show some cards that, that try, to, try to capture this uh, skill play difference. So looking at the play rate. Uh, so what percentage of games in the cohort involves a particular card? Um, and I looked at those numbers and I selected the cards that are most overplayed and most underplayed between each tier. So uh, here are the cards that are most overplayed by the top tier players compared to the bottom tier players. And we have Eyes of Gitaxias, blue. Captive Weird, blue. Inga Runais, blue. Afaras Dispersal, blue. Artistic Refusal, blue. Omen Hawker, blue. Emoti, Celebrant of Bounty, green and blue. Tangled Skyline, green. Uh, Invasion of Amonkhet, black and blue. And Halo Forager, black and blue. So uh, we have a whole collection of uh, blue cards with a slight, slight Sultai tinge. Uh, this is a log to ratio. This means that um, if the value is one, like in case of Immorti Celebrant of Bounty, um, top players play this card twice as frequently as uh, the bottom players. Uh, and if it would be two, it would be four times. So it's a logarithmic scale, uh, notoriously hard to grasp. That's why I use it just to confuse the bejesus out of you. Um, that is a big difference. So like Eyes of Gitaxias will be... Uh, 2 to the 1.36, which is which is 2.5 times more frequently than um, uh, than it is played uh, by the bottom tier players in terms of frequency. Um, and by frequency, obviously, I mean um, not how many games, because of course these groups play different number of games because one group is bigger than the other. I'm looking at normalized values, so uh, basically. Uh, once per how many how many times per one game um, uh, do they play Eyes of Gitaxias? These numbers, uh, yeah, I mean they just show the relative frequency. I I, I don't look at the um, I don't look at the absolute numbers here. Um, no, I'm not normalizing this by game length because I don't have the data yet because the uh, public data sets are not uh, uh, available yet. This is all based on the tables from 17 lands. You can go there and you can look at the data from each tier get the data out of it, put it in the whatever calculation thing that you're using, and um, uh, and you can analyze it yourself. So this is all fully available data from those tables. It's just uh, the trick is how to get it out of there. Um, so the difference between the top and the middle players in terms of frequencies, and here we have much smaller uh, numbers. So um, uh, like 0.62 will be, uh, that will be like 50% more frequently played than um, um, uh, than uh, by the top tier players versus the middle players. And uh, yeah, we have again, Eyes of Gitaxias, Artistic Refusal, um, Flywheel Racer, which is an interesting card. That's why, why I put it in my um, uh, in the first slide of the presentation. I put Flywheel Racer this time uh, because this is the card that seems to be the difference card between the top tier and the middle tier, understanding how to play with it. But we still have the same uh, cards, Captive Weird, Invasion of Amonkhet, Emoti, Tetsuko Omezawa. That's, uh, that's a new uh, arrival. Uh, so uh, uh, the difference between top and uh, bottom tier of this card is not that big, but between top and middle, it is quite large. As far as Dispersal, that already was there. Omen Hawker and Temporal Cleansing, that was also there. So actually two cards that are different uh, between those uh, lists of the overplayed cards by top versus bottom and top versus middle. And that the flywheel racer, uh, the two mana vehicle that uh, you can crew it for one, and it has top add mana of any color to your mana pool, uh, and vigilance, which makes play patterns with this card very interesting because you have to decide whether to crew it 
You have to decide whether to attack with it, and then you have to decide um, uh, how to use the mana. Um, and I think that this is the reason why this card is uh, uh, overplayed by top players. They understand exactly how to use those all those abilities uh, very well and how to sequence them, um, while uh, the middle tier players might be struggling. Um, and Tetsuka Omazawa, it's probably because um, the middle players will play lots of those blue cards that were on the previous list uh, a bit more frequently, or they understand that Tangle Skyline is good, uh, but maybe Tetsuko Umezawa's power has escaped them. In order, I think that that card surprised most of the people that in the set reviews, in terms of evaluation, it plays much better than it uh, was anticipated. Omen Hawker is just a soul ring. That, that's, that's basically what it is, isn't it? Um, now we can look at the flip side of which cards do bottom players play more frequently and um, or actually top players play less frequently. And here we have uh, number one is Atraxas Fall. Uh, bottom tier player play this card four times more as, uh, as, um, as often as, as the top tier players. Uh, that's a massive difference. And that's probably a combination of the both factors. Both the top players avoid playing Atraxas Fall and the bottom tier players um, uh, play it way too often. And then, and because of those things, uh, uh, because of those two things sort of overlaying on top of each other, the difference between uh, between how frequently people play it is uh, four times. Um, tribute to the World Tree, which is a strong card if you can play it, but the problem with it is the GGG and the casting cost. And uh, that makes probably the uh, top player avoiding it unless they're really in a heavy green deck which is not a frequent uh, occurrence in this format um while uh, bottom tier players maybe see a rare and maybe see that you know the effect is really strong because it is a strong effect when you think about it um and they play it um so yeah uh, then we have infected defector that's the uh, five mana four three that dies into an incubate token um it's just uh, not a very powerful card, and I think that top players identified it, and maybe it is appealing to the uh, bottom tier players, you know, as a sort of big creature. But um, uh, um, uh, and they will want to play it. Uh, Coming hot, it's a combat trick, which is sort of medium. Zada Hedron Grinder, that's a build around kind of uh, multiverse legend that uh, can occasionally be good, but uh, really needs a special home for it, and. Unfortunately, the home that is decent for it is not um, uh, is not a very uh, strong archetype, which probably makes the top players avoid uh, playing Zada in general. Uh, Placid Rotten Tail, that's again, uh, white green counters, didn't pan out to be a very good archetype and therefore probably is played less by the top players. Miran Bane Splitter, that's the equipment. Um, again, in red, that is not the most powerful color, will be avoided by top players because they will avoid red in general. Um, and this card in particular, because it's like not, super, not super powerful outside of very few select um, um, select homes. Icarus Shade, uh, a very bad creature that top players just want to avoid, even if they are in black. And it does have the appeal to maybe beginners because it can grow and it offers a promise of being good. But uh, often, then more often than not, uh, you're, it's going to um, uh, betray that promise. And Copper Host Crusher, the 8-mana, eight 8-8 eight, eight Trampler with Hexproof. Um, this is the kind of exact card that top players will avoid because they do understand that 8-mana is not easy to achieve. And if you don't achieve the 8-mana, it, it is a card that says, oh, you mulligan to 6, but you have a card in your hand. 
Um, so there might be homes for that card where it's going to be okay, but there's not going to be many homes for that. So that's why it's like three times less played by the uh, top players versus the bottom players. And Seraph of New Capella, again, a card that is medium, uh, but looks very appealing potentially. Uh, and the differences between top and the middle players, and we have two of the, oh, actually bunch of the same cards really. Atraxas Fall is the most underplayed, but the difference is much uh, smaller. So um, it was four times a difference uh, between top and bottom players. Now it's only 2.5% 2, 2 difference between the uh, top and um, uh, medium players. And then the second card is uh, Tribute to the World Tree. Again, this seems like to be a trap for uh, both uh, bottom and middle tier. Infected Defector, again, trap for both the bottom and middle tier. Zada, Copperhost Crasher coming in hot. We had all those cards. And um, we have two other cards that were not on the list. Um, um, uh, Crassus Depth Guard, the 4-3 uh, defender, that if it gets bigger, it can actually attack. Um, this looks like a trap for the, um, for the players in the middle tier. Uh, probably trying to live the dream when you can play it on turn three and on turn four, make it bigger and attack with it, but it rarely, um, rarely um, uh, fulfills that promise. Uh, I have a question. So Hermit suffers from the same weakness as Herd Beast. Can't afford to play four plus mana value creatures with no ETB. Uh, which which hermit? Uh, uh, which which hermit? Bonded herb beast is another card on that list that um, that is underplayed. Oh, the troll. Um, yeah, I had a trophy deck that went seven zero with three of those. Um, um, okay, so hermit is a four mana four four. That's probably a saving grace. I think it should be played in a deck that can utilize it the best, and that deck would probably require having like a bunch of omen. Uh, uh, omen um oh my god hawkers yeah um yeah in, in general um in, in general hermit is not having great numbers it probably is not far from in that list of being underplayed overplayed um but yeah i mean i don't think that those cards that i'm mentioning here are unplayable i just think that those cards have a very narrow home that they can go into and top players will identify um a good home uh, much more frequently than, uh, than than the middle and the bottom player players, because they do understand that this is a card that is situational, and um, well, the con content creator shorthand is usually you will know when you when you need it, um, which is which is not completely true because lots of people will not know when they need it and they will not know when they don't need it, and that's the whole idea of this episode is to maybe try to speculate on what are the situations, but. Uh, um hermit is one of those cards that can be really strong if you have it because when you think about it when you have like omen hawker and you flip it cheap and you flip it early and then the omen hawker can actually be used very well with attacking with it um that card is great but uh if you don't have that kind of stuff well then then you might be running into a problem by playing this thing that uh, needs six mana to flip and then doesn't do much it's also like in the meta game with uh, Faras. um uh, dispersal flipping cards is scary because uh because people will just bounce them and then you just spend a lot of mana on nothing okay um okay well these are the cards that are different uh, uh, over and underplayed depending on the uh on the tier of the player that uh, uh that we're looking at um 
So second of all, uh, we can look at understanding power of the cards. And my final data set, because I trimmed all the cards that had small sample sizes, was 267 cards from the set. So roughly, what, uh, 70 cards were trimmed uh, because they had too small uh, sample sizes. Most of those uh, were having too small sample sizes in the uh, bottom tier. Uh, so yeah, we, we lost information on those. But I'd rather lose some information and keep the um, data set consistent. Um, so I looked at all those cards and I looked at where they are played uh, at the highest rate. Um, and um, 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 so, for example, 82 of those 267 cards were played at the highest rate in the top players group, which means that if I looked at all the games played, 82 of the uh, of the cards in the whole set uh, were the place the, the the group where they were played the most frequently was the top players group, um, based on again relative uh, play frequency. So I don't look into account on how many games were played in the. Um, so I, I don't care that uh, a card was played three thousand times in top player group and two thousand times in uh, in middle player group because. If there is a difference of like 60% between how many games were played, obviously that wouldn't tell anything. I normalize it for the total number of games. Uh, but 82 of the cards were played um, at the highest rate in the top players group. Um, and 145 cards were played um, at the highest rate in the bottom players group. And only 40%, 40 cards were played at the highest rate in the middle players group. Um, and conversely, 155 cards were having lowest play rate in the top players group. And that to me tells you that uh, top players group is highly selective and they actually play with a much smaller subset of cards in the format. They pick those best cards, which are not many of, and they hard avoid uh, the weaker cards. And this is one of the important reasons why they win more because you are, um, oh, I think the definition is the 17 lands uh, tier um, uh, um, uh, which basically means that you had to have a particular win rate for the, at least two of the last three uh, sets. So these are the players that are not only um, having a high win rate, but that they also uh, played with that high win rate for multiple of the recent sets. And um, and also the, these are all the players that play regularly. So people that are in the bottom tier, uh, they were at least in the two of the last three sets in the bottom tier. The cutoffs are unknown. It will be around uh, around 59% for the top tier, around 54% um, for the middle tier, and around 48% for the bottom tier, roughly. But they are not like set in stone. They, uh, they are based on some calculations that go behind the thing, and I actually don't have access to the numbers uh, myself. Um, I don't know if that division is better than just doing the quartile division. Uh, or the or the whatever thirty three percentile division. Um, actually, I actually don't know. Uh, there are drawbacks and advantages of using both uh, 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 both uh, ways. This is the question from the chat. Do you think current division is better than just doing one twenty five percent, twenty six seventy five percent, or seventy six hundred percent? I think that um, uh, putting a large group in the middle, uh, I would. And if, if I would do it, I would probably divide them in quartiles in general and have four groups. Of course, that would mean smaller data size, uh, but actually that mean, would mean that the uh, data is much more uniform. The problem, of course, uh, with that is that we're looking at the number of games played. And that doesn't necessarily mean that this is the number of players, because 
people in the top tier are usually degenerates that play like 20 drafts a week and then uh, if not more and and then of course they generate a lot of data and lots of the data is uh, you know relying on very few people while in the bottom tiers you might have players that play a bit rare, uh, less frequently so you have more players um uh more players in those groups but uh, but fewer games if that makes sense to you uh, Lucius, there's a lot of data that I don't have access from 17 lands for very good reasons. Like, for example, I don't have the data of um, individual users because obviously people want to play se use 17 lands without, you know, the ability of me going and mocking them online and pick up for their poor win rate. I still can do it to, to that cube, though, even though I don't have his data. But I, I'm assuming that at least 70% of his decks have 41 cards and I can make fun of that. Um, but okay, um, so coming back to the actual topic, <laughs> um, I think that yeah, this data sort of suggests that uh, top players are highly selective and the bottom players are highly speculative in terms of what cards they play. And they will play cards based on whims and, um, uh, and that will cost them win rate, for example. Um, so to, uh, to give you more into that, um, when you look at the... Uh, Top tier players, uh, the most, the cards that they play the most from all the uh, player tiers, so the 82 cards that they are playing uh, the most. Uh, when you look at their uh, game in hand win rate, the average is 62.6. Uh, the cards that they play the least from all the groups, uh, average win rate for them is 58.1 percentage points. So, like 4.5 percentage point difference between those which means that they play the most the cards that are the strongest for them. And they play the least the cards that are the weakest for them. There are some exceptions from those. Uh, and there are some strong cards that they play rarely. But usually I looked at those and, and, and these are the cards like Rayaf, uh, the Multiverse Legend, which is a strong card that requires a particular build around. And I assume that uh, top players will play it, but only when they see the lane is open and uh, they will select against playing this card when they when it doesn't have enough synergy, while well, maybe the uh, bottom and middle tier players will not. And that means that they will boost the win rate of that card when they are playing it because they are very um, scrupulously selecting against playing that card when they don't think that the deck can handle it. Um, and the rest of the cards where they are neither the least played or the most played, uh, the win rate is 61%. And these are usually the cards that have a very similar play rate between all the groups. For instance, cards that are obvious bombs, that's why it's going to be a high win rate. But the important important part of this is this graph. Of this graph is those first two. They will have a really really high win rate with the cards that they play the most frequently, and then a uh, really lower win rate uh, with the cards that they don't play as frequently as the other groups. And when you look at the same data but for the bottom tier players, you have the completely reverse thing. Um, um, the cards that bottom tier players played the most compared to other groups are the cards that have the lowest win rate. And that's probably because, A, they don't know understand the uh, power of the card, uh, therefore the title of the slide, Understanding Power, but also they might be the cards that they're pushed into playing because they don't pick uh, good cards early enough. They play colors that are not strong enough because they couldn't identify um, the best color combinations. Um, and because of that, they will be playing the cards that are not so powerful the most because they don't know that these cards are not that powerful. So it's all about being able to evaluate the cards and understanding which cards are good in the format. The, you know, 
even though they are 17 lens users, and it would be super interesting to get this data from non-17 lens users, um, they might be not as involved as the top players are, or maybe they they have uh, certain bad habits. I would say maybe maybe you know like the willingness to play their pet card over the um, over the actual um, uh, win rate. I don't know if it's a bad habit to play cards that you like uh, instead of playing the cards that will win you uh, more, but. Um, uh, from the perspective of analyzing win rate, uh, it will be bad for their win rate. And then the least cards that they play, so the cards that they play least frequently compared to the other groups, um, the win rate of that those cards will be 50.8. So three percentage points difference between those in the reverse direction than we had with the top players. So they either don't pick frequently enough the good cards that work for them actually, or they are pushed out of playing those cards and that's why they play um, uh, them less frequently because the top players will hog those cards because they do pick them aggressively. Um, and the rest are around 49, so in the middle, that doesn't really matter. The important the important part of this graph is those two. Uh, so yeah, in terms of understanding play patterns. So, uh, so yeah, I mean, understanding power is important. And we saw that in cards, we saw that in color pairs before. Um, all those things point to the direction that uh, bottom tier players could greatly improve their win rate if they started prioritizing uh, more powerful cards highly and more powerful color combinations more highly. Uh, how the data looks like is that they don't prioritize things uh, as aggressively as the top players. Um, because of that, they end up playing more of the poor cards because if they don't prioritize the good cards, they will pick the worst cards. And they also don't prioritize the colors that are successful for them. Um, they, uh, uh, they seem to be maybe, you know, I don't know, bound by the first pick, for example, or or, or maybe uh, preferences for playing white-green because they love white-green, and because of that, they lose edge and they lose uh, winning percentage points. So uh, in terms of understanding play patterns, there are edges to be gained by utilizing cards well. And this can be done by boosting the card synergy, for example, by constructing a deck that will utilize the power of the card more better or by minimizing cards drawback. And we're gonna have an example of such card when uh, possibly um, good players will build their decks and put the card in the decks that can minimize its drawback or by building around it well, by, by making sure that you select the right um, um, uh, teammates for, for a particular card or by just having good play patterns with the card. And um, especially that's important with cards that have a complicated uh, play pattern. And here we have really good examples of cards like that in the format. There are lots of instant convoke spells. If you know you will watch, for example, a card call streaming, he will sometimes skip an attack to have enough mana for uh, for the convoke, convoke counter spell. Um, and maybe a, a, a player who doesn't understand the play patterns around the counter spell will attack, tap out, and then uh, not be able to play the counter spell, which is beneficial. Um, so in order, to look at the cards with the, those tricky play patterns and maybe easier play patterns, um, I look at the differences between the game and hand win rate between top and bottom tier in this particular case. Uh, so these are the cards that have the highest difference in win rate between top and bottom tier. And card number one on the list is the Lithomantic Barrage. This is the one mana sorcery that deals one damage to a target creature or planeswalker. Or if it's white or blue, it deals five damage to that creature or planeswalker. Also, it can be counter, countered. Um, 
16 percentage points or almost 17 percentage points uh, difference in uh, win rate between the top and bottom tiers and uh, there can be multiple um, reasons for that number one uh, top tier players will select to play this card less frequently and two top tier players will uh, be able to minimize the drawback of that card. The drawback of that card is that if you're playing against a deck that doesn't have white or blue, it's a one mana deal, one damage to a creature, which is not a great play. Um, but you can do it. Uh, uh, you can play looters, you can play rummagers, uh, and there's plenty of those in the format. If you do that, then uh, even if you play against a deck that the card is not good against, you can uh, rummage it or you can lose it and, 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 and get deeper into your deck try to draw something better than that. If you don't have those options, you will be stuck with that in your hand and maybe you will find the target for it, maybe not. Um, GIH means game in hand win rate. That's the win rate uh, of the card when you had it in your hand in the game at any stage. Uh, this is a good measure for the power of the card because it focuses on the games when the card could have had the most impact. If you would look only at the win rate when the card is played, 40-50% of the games you don't uh, 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 you don't draw the card. So half of that data does not even have any impact of that card on the game. So yeah. Thank you, Gold Links. I had a 7-0 with the um, Simic signpost. It was great in that deck. But yes, in general, uh, it is a tricky strategy. Um, so second card that we have on that list is the Flywheel Racer, the card that I already mentioned, the two-mana vehicle, three-two Vigilance, and it can tap for one mana of any uh, of any color. Uh, great card if you know how to play with it. Um, it can be disastrous if you don't know. This is a sort of like Jaspera Sentinel because it can give you any mana of any color. It can ramp you. It requires a creature to tap with it. Uh, and um, it has a lot of complication when you play with it. Uh, because first of all, it is actually an aggressive card if you want it to be. And um, very often you can uh, do some really decent attacks with it. But uh, the problem is that if you do a wrong attack, um, you lose your mana source that you tapped your creature to get, and um, uh, and uh, that might ruin your planning. Um, sometimes you might not, you might play it in decks that don't really need the five color fixing, or um, uh, I would probably avoid it in those type of decks. So there's lots of really small things in there um, um, where you can, uh, where you can gain uh, additional advantages. Then we have Errant and Giada. This is a card that um, allows you to play flying cr creatures with flying and, 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 and spells with flash uh, from the top of your library. And you can look at the top of your library at any stage. This is a classic card that uh, gives advantage for deck building. You know, uh, there will be a very big difference between Errant and Giada um, uh, when it's played in a deck with two flyers and one spell with flash versus you know five flyers and two spells with flash would be a completely different card um, also it has flash itself which is um, requires some sort of skill to be to play it well um and because of that i think that uh, that explains a lot of the difference um uh, top players will be able to utilize all those small things in that card and that will boost the win rate in general uh then we have thornwood falls which is a simic land and that probably explains is explained by the fact that if we go back far, far, far away, uh, the delta between Simic and um, uh, in, uh, between top tier players and bottom tier players in Simic is, is, is quite, quite large. Um, 
so that might be that might be the explanation for that. Although, and also, uh, semi-clamped will be played a lot in the uh, multicolor decks because you probably want to build it something around uh, semi. Um, so I wouldn't put too much weight on Tormund Falls. But there's another card, Unsealed Necropolis. That's uh, all players mill three, and then you can return two creatures from your graveyard to your hand instant spell. Uh, this is a kind of spell that gives choice, and those spells that give choice uh, usually are favoring top tier players. That's why we might see this big difference. Zelfirin's Shapecraft and a tricky combat trick. Um, uh, uh, that's uh, those tricky combat tricks might be uh, might be uh, the reason why there's a big difference is because they're tricky. Inga Runai's interesting play patterns that can really get a big advantage out of playing it. And also Scry 3 is, uh, is an ability that will promote top tier players because they are much better in dealing with uh, uh, scrying multiple spells. Um, Omen Hawker, this is a soul ring, but you need to build your deck around it very well. And uh, probably top tier players will be much better in building um, uh, Omen Hawker decks. Card is excellent, but it can be a disaster if you put it in your deck because the worst thing that you want in your deck is a 1-1 vanilla. And um, in some decks that I've seen it being played, it, it did look very much like a 1-1 vanilla. But if you have this and yes, I get two extra mana every turn. Now then we're talking um, we're talking uh, about something impressive. So, you know, you play Omen Hawker and then um, something that uh, incubates on turn two, or you maybe land cycle on turn two and um, uh, for free because uh, land cycling is an ability. Then on turn three, you play Eyes of Jitaxias and instantly be able to flip it with Omen Hawker. Now we're talking, you're using mana super efficiently uh, uh, with that creature. But if you don't do that, then it becomes a pretty poor. Uh, Deep Root Wayfinder, that's the two drop rare. Um, I don't know why the card is here. I'm not going to speculate it because that would be just guessing. Um, Moment of Truth, which one is that? That's the, huh, oh, my brain. Oh yeah, that's the uh, that's the sort of impulsive version spell. Um, in in Dominaria United, um, the uh, no is it is it moment just through the uh, one in the blue thing that uh, you can put one card in your hand, one uh, on the bottom of your library, and one in your graveyard. Yeah. Um, so this is a, this sort of like an impulse card, and and these cards are um, notoriously uh, promoting top tier players. Like, again, I'd like to repeat myself, uh, in Dominar United, Impulse was the card with the biggest differential between top tier players and uh, bottom tier players, because looking at four cards and selecting one of them is a very skill intensive moment in the game. Because most of the time, you need to plan a couple of steps ahead. And if you play, if you plan two steps ahead or four steps ahead, you will have, have very different decisions uh, based on what you pick from Impulse. And here it's going to be, to a certain extent, the same. Um, uh, but Blade, Bladed Battle Fan, uh, that's another card that has a big differential. Um, giving something indestructible uh, is something that also needs to be done with a lot of thought. And probably Bladed Battle Fan sort of generates multiple pieces of cardboard. Um, it, it can be a sacrifice folder. If you build well around it, you're going to get small edges, and that will increase the win rate. Uh, Shana says Legacy. Here, I would expect that this card has a higher win rate in top players because they selectively play it. So they will not put it in every deck, while maybe uh, lower tier uh, players will play it more frequently in the decks where it is not that great. 
Uh, Quintorius lore master discard definitely requires a setup and planning and building. Uh, so on all levels, you need to think about how to play the best with Quintorius, how to utilize those spells that you can cast with it, uh, how to make sure that you play it and instantly get a um, get a spirit token and stuff like that. All those small decisions again will make it a more complex card to play. And uh, Invasion of Pyrulia, um, that's again a scry three card and scrying three, looking at top three uh, um, cards of your library. These are abilities that top tier players will utilize in an excellent way and maybe the bottom tier players are still learning how to do it. So if you, again, if you position yourself, if you think that you might belong to the uh, uh, players in the bottom tier, start playing with the scry three cards, they're great. Uh, but um, maybe see what other people are doing with them because um, playing them correctly is going to win you a lot of games uh, in the long term when you learn how to utilize them correctly. And the last, the Mirror and Bane Splitter, again, I think it's a selection thing. I think that this is almost exclusively played as an equipment in sort of equipment synergy decks um, uh, when they have uh, Ryaf uh, as a multiverse legend uh, in top tier players. And maybe the bottom tier players just want to play it as a combat trick and then um, and they are left with this clunky equipment on board uh, and that's not so great. Also because it has flash, uh, it can be uh, it can be used uh, more efficiently by players who know exactly the moment when they can play it. Um, and now I have the very high skill cards. And why I call it very high skill cards? Because these are the cards that have the biggest delta between the top and the middle tier players. Um, I assume middle tier players are are solid players. You know, you have average win rate of fifty four. That's 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 not bad at all, especially in the ranked play. Uh, but still, there are some cards that have a much bigger difference uh, between uh, the top and the middle tier. Um, 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 and these cards, I sort of classified as okay. These cards have a really high skill level because even those good players um, cannot utilize them as well as um, uh, as the best players. And again. It will be a mixture of, uh, of, of, of reasons why that happens. And uh, on top of that, we have the transcendent message, the blue, 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 blue X spell um, where uh, draw X cards. Um, this is a build around card, and it's great if you can build around with it, uh, but it's not going to be so great when you don't know how to build around with it. Um, and looking at the data, I mean, you don't see the full pictures that I saw when I was doing my analysis. Um, I think that uh, the middle tier players just go too much all in on the transcendent message, while top tier players use it as a sort of reward for being a convoke deck, but don't necessarily need to cast it for like 17 in order to win. They will know that sometimes casting it for free is just excellent and they will play it like that. And they will build a deck that it will be, you know, reliably cast as draw three cards kind of spell, like a better version of the uh, of the common uh, convoke draw two card. Uh, invasion of Carsis, uh, that's the deal three to all creatures and um, uh, um, invasion. And again, um, if you are very good, you will make sure to lure your opponent into putting as wide a board as possible and then punishing them as uh, as as much as they physically can. And maybe when you're in this middle uh, tier, this is the aspect of the game that you're still learning. How to make sure that you get the maximum possible blowout from playing this kind of sweeper effects, um, especially when they are conditional sweepers. And maybe when to play it to kill just one creature. Uh, that's another thing that you can uh, maybe not do when you're in the middle tier. Maybe you want to 
make sure that you get maximum value, maybe at least two for one. But sometimes it's good to one for one when um, when it can lead to you flipping it uh, pretty quickly. So uh, that's a one. Uh, that's the thing to think. Again, Shana CC's legacy, uh, I think, is based on um, selecting when to play the card, um, most possibly because I don't see how um, in this format, especially uh, top tier players, could utilize it more efficiently, except for putting it in the right decks rather than uh, putting it in any decks. But you know, there are some small. Um, edges to be gained from playing Shana. Like, for example, um, you know, sequencing your creatures before the attack so that you open some attacks with it. Uh, for example, maybe middle players sometimes miss that kind of uh, possibility. And then we have, again, Skyly Racer. So it was uh, in the previous uh, data set as well as one of the highest cards, and it's uh, quite high uh, here. Um, and yeah, Flywheel Racer, again, complicated card to play, but very beneficial if you play very well with it. And I think that that benefits the top tier players. Uh, Disturbing Conversion, that's the aura that gives minus X. Um, um, yeah, I mean, again, a, a card that requires some mild building around and mild uh, planning around. Um, Ray F, uh, that's important. I guess this is a clear selection thing. Um, Rayev has a very high win rate for the top tier players. It's one of the top cards actually in the whole format. Um, I can go to my uh, support data set uh, two, 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 and sort the cards by win rate of the best players from largest to smallest. So let's look at it. Rayev, 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 Rayev. Yeah, it's number 34 of all the cards in the format, uh, which is pretty strong for a card that is not a high priority for the top tier players in terms of how frequently they play it. So um, it seems to me that this card is um, benefiting from careful selection when you want to use it rather than uh, just jamming it in any deck. But they get 64% win rate out of it, which is quite impressive to be fair. Um, but then I put a bunch of graphs on top of the stuff that I want to actually read. Uh, but then... Uh, it is played very rarely by the top players. Um, maybe they should. There are more ray of uh, friendly strategies to be to be done um, uh, by those players. Maybe they actually play it a bit too low because uh, the play rate is really low for an uncommon for that. Uh, for example, uh, 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 for example, something like Scornblade Berserker is played ten times more frequently than ray of is, uh, and Scornblade Berserker is not exactly the top top played um, uh, uncommon. Um, yeah, so uh, there might be something like that with it. Uh, Bladed Battlefan we talked about. Uh, Furia, Judge of Valor, again, uh, this is clearly uh, a uh, card that requires some careful building around, but uh, will not be played um, very frequently. It might be the same situation as with Brayev. Uh, Mike, yeah, this sounds like it's a, it's a phenomenal card in the right deck, but you need specific things, so it's not a build around. It is a build around, but it's more like a build around that um, will happen very rarely, and, um, and 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 when you don't have it, it just becomes a very poor card. But also, um, like it's a build around that is seems easy, but is actually hard. Um, and yes, you probably want to be in the deck before you pick it, rather than to pick it and build around it. Uh, if that's that that's the way you mean it, then I agree with this comment. And you want multiples, true. Um, because you probably can get multiples if you are in the right lane. And um, 
uh, last card on the list is Hunger Scrounger, my 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 favorite uh, th theory crafting card for this uh, set. I called it a uh, scrapyard worker. What was it? Scrap scrapwork mutt. That's that's what I call it. Scrapwork mutt because it can basically rummage two cards. Uh, it has some synergy with like. Um, vehicles when you can tap it and, and rummage uh, while activating the vehicles. Uh, plenty of building around this card and it also offers selection and rummaging is the toughest selection because you need to make sure to set it up nicely. You know, it's even those small things like if you play a Hunger Scrounger, top player will usually, usually keep a land that they don't need to play in their hand in case they draw it, uh, but maybe someone will not. And then... Uh, <laughs> this is how games are being won and lost in the uh, in our lovely game. Uh, not keeping that land to um, to rummage it uh, might come and bite you in the yeah. Um, so now let's look at the medium skill cards, um, and these are the cards that are the biggest difference between the middle and the bottom tier. Um, and number one on the list is actually Athraxas Fall. It has the biggest difference between the middle and the bottom tier in terms of middle tier players win quite a lot with it, uh, while the bottom tier players don't. Um, I think that it might have something to do with the metagame that Luca was uh, mentioning before. Uh, medium tier players will probably mostly be a platinum, and um, maybe those platinum uh, metagame uh, does favor playing a Traxxas Fall. And uh, it doesn't have like an amazing win rate, don't get me wrong about it, uh, but uh, it has high enough. I to check what 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 win rate do they have? Um, uh, so middle tier players have fifty five percent win rate with Atraxas Fall. That's actually five percentage points higher than the uh, than the top tier players who have a very bad forty nine percent win rate with that. Um, and the bottom tier players uh, much lower than that, forty two. Um, then we have Fertilitz Favor. Uh, that's the kind of a card that can be a good combat trick, maybe when people don't play around it. Um, it can help you build those multicolor decks, like three color decks. Um, uh, so yeah, um, just works better for the mid middle tier players. So uh, if you're like playing green decks and consider yourself like bottom tier, um, maybe you should give a fertility favor a bit of a try. Uh, Invasion of Eldraine, uh, that's another card that uh, might. Uh, requires some of those early developed skills uh, because you want to play it when you get the max value of it. Uh, so you want to play it, you might want to make sure that you discard two cards, but you definitely want to try uh, to discard both cards from the opponent's deck. So like optimal way of playing this card is to make sure that you nab two of the last cards from your opponent's hand and they are in the top deck mode. Uh, play too early and they probably will discard something that is not so important and keep the best thing. Play it too late and you only discard one card and that's also not so great for you. So uh, it's very hard to, hard to thread this fine line and maybe when you're a beginner player, you uh, miss on it and you don't get the full value of it. Uh, Omen Hawker, uh, we talked about it. Render Inert. Um, I don't know why this card is here. I don't have an idea why would it be difficult to play. I do know about Seed of Hope. Uh, Seed of Hope, card that I proudly gave an F in my set review and turns out that's more like a C+. But it's a C plus that you can't put into any deck. You probably don't want to have more than five, six of other non uh, non permanent uh, cards in your deck. With five, six, you have like two percent chance of completely whiffing on it. Um, 
So yeah, I wouldn't go much more than that. Uh, if I played it, probably I wouldn't like to play multiples of it. And turns out that medium skill players uh, get a decent win rate out of it. Um, and uh, when you go to the bottom tier players, they have a very bad one. Um, I'm trying to find it, Seed of Hope. Uh, so 59% win rate for top players, 55% win rate for uh, mid-tier players, and 45 for the bottom. Um, so 55 is decent for the uh, for the for the mid, mid, medium tier players. It's like in the top half of their uh, best winning cards. Um, Dismal Backwater probably just because of uh, being better at playing uh, Demir. We saw in the earlier data that uh, bottom tier players are not great with Demir, and they actually win. It's their maybe fourth or fifth best archetype. Well, it's the best archetype for top players and the. Uh, second best archetype for the uh, medium players. That probably is the reason for that difference. Lithomantic Barrage, uh, we talked about the card. Again, if you play it, you want to make sure that you have ways of uh, utilizing it if um, if you uh, if you don't have good targets for it. Uh, you need to have ways of, of dealing with it. And then Invasion of Pyrulia, uh, again, a card with um, uh, Scry 3, that is difficult to play um, uh, optimally if you uh, don't know what you're doing. Uh, and Shapecraft, the tricky combat trick, uh, similar cards that we've seen already in the difference between middle and the bottom, uh, in the between top and the bottom. But if the same cards are seen uh, between top and the bottom and the middle and the bottom, that means that there is a small difference in those cards between uh, top and the middle, uh, which makes me think that you quite early in your development as a player develop the skills that are needed to play this card well. Um, also, there are cards that are just universally good. And here I took at the uh, I took uh, cards that are in the top 25% of win rate altogether for the best players, but have the smallest difference um, between best players and the lower tiers. And by I calculated those differences by, by calculating average tier difference. So I looked at the tier difference between top and bottom, top and middle, and middle and bottom, and I took the average of those three numbers, and I only looked at the cards that are in the top 25% win rate um, in top tier. So Sunfall is the biggest uh, bomb with like very low skill level. Um, so um, you just draw it, you play it, and usually you win the game. Um, that's a very small difference between um, between top and bottom players um, in terms of win rate. Uh, just to give you the exact number, Sunfall, 71.5% mm, win rate in top player group, 67.8% uh, in the middle, and 665 in the bottom. So this is a card that just basically plays itself uh, most of the time. Now, obviously, as, um, as um, uh, Gold Links mentioned in the chat, it's not universal that it will make you win games. No card does that. Um, and uh, they had a, uh, allegedly a poor run with that card in their deck. Uh, but for most people, it does work. And I'm sure that if uh, Gold Links will try uh, it multiple times, it will click. Because uh, if you lose with that card, it's not based on you not being able to play. It's probably based on you being quite unlucky with it. But of course, it might be that uh, best players will be much better playing around it, so they limit the power of that card. While if you play in the lower tiers, you just have like this one, no one expects it, no one plays around it. They put the whole board against you, you just wrath and then take over the game from there.
and that might narrow that gap between uh, the win rate between uh, top tier and the bottom tier, for example. And then we have a collection of bombs and good uncommons. Uh, Eloshnorn, uh, the new one. Vorinclex, the new one. Elvish Vatkeeper, the uh, Gulgarian common um, that makes a 3-3 and a potential 2-2-4-4 uh, body, um, um, depending on which cost are you going to spend on uh, incubating your incubator. Uh, Furnace Reigns, that's the uh, steal a creature until end of turn effect that has a very low difference between uh, top decks and bottom decks and is good in the top top players, uh, uh, in top player data, it is in this top quarter. Norm's Inquisitor, another card that gives two bodies uh, with the Phyrexian, uh, like Vat Keeper. Uh, Atris, Oracle of Hathruth. Uh, I think that this is a particularly interesting one because uh, obviously this card is, you know, if your opponent doesn't know what to do with it, you're going to get great piles from it. And um, that's the 3 2 uh, menace creature that uh, when it ETBs, opponent has to divide the top three cards of your library into two piles. One of them you see, one of them you don't. If they do it in a bad way, you're going to get really great value out of it. And maybe that's why the difference is small, because even though uh, the card is sort of skill intensive, um, uh, it also takes into account the skill of your opponent. When you're a top tier player, uh, you probably play against people in Mythic who know what they are doing and they will give you worse piles for you. And when you play in the bottom tier, you very often will play with people who are at your uh, sort of skill level and then they will maybe make bad piles for you, uh, good piles for you and bad for themselves, which means you're going to benefit more from Atris when, um, uh, against weaker opponents. Uh, Pylon, that card is a straightforward removal um, and powerful enough that the difference is very small. Archpriest of Shadow, Ozolith, Itali, all those cards are bombs and they are just good in any deck and it's very easy to get the value out of them. Um, Skyclave Aerialist, and that's an interesting one because uh, Skyclave Aerialist is uh, a 2-1 flyer that has a very small difference between uh, high and uh, lower uh, win rate tiers, while a 2-1-2-1 two -one, two -one, with Flash and some abilities uh, in the Mastermind, Fairy Mastermind, uh, has a big delta between the ability. Uh, Boonbringer Valkyrie, uh, Baneslayer, turns out, does not require much skill. You just jam it and win. Uh, Gairuda, that's a bit surprising. Uh, there is a low difference between um, top tiers. Um, and Kogla and Yudaro, another big bomb. That's just taking over the game independently if you make mistakes or not. So all those cards are sort of just powerful enough on their own that they will negate any kind of uh, differences in uh, in uh, skill. Okay, so this is the cards where there was the biggest delta between the higher tier and the lower tier. But I also wanted to look at the cards where beginners are benefiting from playing those cards in their decks. And um, here I didn't do them strictly by win rate percentage order. I also looked at in which sort of quadrile of 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 of, of power they are located, and what is the difference between the the, the quadru, quartiles? Uh, so, for example, Beamtown Beatstick is in the top twenty five percent of the best cards for the beginners, uh, but in terms of the uh, top tier, it's like in the bottom uh, uh, quarter. So, this card is not really anything impressive in the top tiers, but uh, it actually works really good for the uh, bottom tier players 
difference between the win rate is relatively small, just 5.2% uh, percentage points. Uh, when you think that, you know, average win rate difference between top and bottom players is like 12, 13 percentage points, that's like less than half of it. So um, this card is doing way better in the hands of the less advanced players because probably of the opponent quality is lower and also because it probably benefits the strategies that they feel, they feel comfortable in and that's probably, the strategy is probably uh, aggressive. Weirdest card on this list is Inga and Essica. Um, uh, two blue and a green 4-4 uh, that gives all your creatures vigilance and all your creatures can tap for mana of any color. Uh, so that's quite a lot. Uh, this is the only card where actually uh, the bottom tier players have a higher game in hand win rate with that card than the top uh, tier players. I have no idea why, but that's the data and what can I do about it? I just have to report it. And then we have a bunch of red cards. Rens Resolve, Harried Artisan, Captain Lannery Storm, uh, uh, Fearless Skull, Furnace Gremlin, uh, that about it, but a bunch of red cards that are looking like they are going to be good and aggressive archetypes are doing much better relatively in the um, uh, bottom tier uh, players' decks than in the top tier players' decks, uh, which sort of points me towards, if you're a beginner, Try not maybe maybe not to be too fancy. Just try to build those aggressive decks, and uh, maybe you know introduce synergy bit by bit to try to make them maybe a bit more grindy. Uh, but just by building basic aggressive decks, you're going to go pretty far because those cards tend to benefit the players of that skill set because they require just a bit fewer decision. I'm not saying that the aggro strategies are easy to play because to play them at the high level it requires a lot of skill and a lot of practice, but they are less forgiving because of the lower decision-making capacity. So you will have fewer of those games that you're going to lose because you uh, mixed up how you play your cards and mixed up uh, sequencing of them and mixed up some interactions and maybe you don't know how to manage your threats uh, that well. Like my classic example of um, complicated decks was Opa and Terrors Beyond Death when they played like a bunch of decks that had three creatures and they still managed to win the games because they they were capable of managing their threads very well. Maybe when you're a beginning, you won't be able to win a single game with that kind of deck uh, that uh, Opa trophied with because uh, it requires to perfectly sequence every single thing that you're doing and also making sure that you can manage your threads and uh, not lose them. Uh, to some removal and then uh, be left with no possibility of winning the game. We also have a bunch of white um, aggressive cards, Dusk Legion, du Duelist, um, um, uh, Enduring uh, Bond Warden, uh, Tarkir Dune Shaper. All those cards have a slightly, uh, well, they have a lower win rate in the bottom tier group, but the, the difference is not that amazingly big. So we, we're talking about six to eight percentage points. Um, also, weirdly, Rona Shieldress Faithful is doing really well in those beginner decks and is doing pretty poor in the um, top tier decks. I don't know what is the reason for that, but uh, it's it's there. It's a real effect. And things like Karuga the Macrosage. Mm. Karuga the Macrosage is just, you know, five mana, five four that draws you a bunch of cards. And that ability will be probably good when you play in the bottom tiers because maybe there is fewer counter spells flying around. Uh, whenever you play it, you gain some kind of card advantage. Well, in the top tier, you need to play around a lot, and maybe you cannot play it in the right moment, and maybe there's more trading going on, so you will never have that white board, so you will not draw that many cards. 
maybe it's the uh, games that are uh, in the bottom tiers are more likely to end in a board stall of some sort. And then cards that can break board stall will be pretty good. And Inga and Essica is, for example, one card like that. Because all your creatures get vigilance, you can start jamming with some creature and chipping off the damage without losing the capacity of, uh, of having blocks. Uh, right. Here we can look at the cards with the smallest differences between the middle and the bottom tier. So these are the cards that when you probably have to, if you consider yourself to be the bottom tier player in terms of the win rate, these are probably the cards that you want to look at. Um, uh, on, these are the cards that uh, will potentially be your initial ticket to uh, to that higher tier because the differences in win rate between uh, these cards and the, in the middle tier and the bottom tier are quite small. That means that if you play a lot of those cards, you will sort of naturally gravitate towards the middle tier. And then you can uh, basically uh, start experimenting with other things. Uh, and weirdly, we have Transcendent Message, which actually has a higher win rate in uh, the lower tier uh, players than in the bottom. And this points me to, like, literally, this must be a trap for those players who are getting decent but are not great just yet. Uh, that they play the transcendent message, the blue, 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 blue uh, X uh, card draw spell in in some particularly bad way. So there must be like a place there to figure out a weakness of the whole cohort of the players. And I'm not talking, I mean, obviously individually, some people will be capable of playing it well, but as an average uh, of the cohort, uh, middle tier players play things like transcendent message bad. And that's why I thought that this card is maybe slightly over thought by those and they try to go too much all in on it and don't play it don't play it when they should because they want to keep it for max value later and then they don't survive till the max value and lose the games with the card in their hand that's my hypothesis also Karuga potentially the same problem you want to maximize the value and because of that you don't play it at the right moment and that might be a big level up moment for those middle uh, tier players Play things slightly earlier. Don't try to maximize the value. Uh, get things done in some situations. Uh, then we have a bunch of uh, good aggro creatures. We have Goreclaw, Red Cup, Heel Slasher, uh, Rayaf, Harried Artisan, um, Furnace Gremlin, Guardian of Jira, Gira, Guardian of Girapur, or Guardian of Girapur, Guardian of Girapur. Uh, Ral's reinforcements, etched host, Doombringer, like sort of mid rangey kind of things. Um, so yeah, I mean, these are the cards that uh, beginners do relatively best with. Um, uh, and yeah, uh, it seems to me that lots of it will be uh, aggro synergies, uh, basically. Oh, Mike has a comment about Inga and uh, uh, Essica. I wonder if Inga and Essica ends up in multicolor decks with poor mana bases for low tier players, but high tier players already have good mana bases, so including it, it actually hurts them. Maybe. That's that's an interesting hypothesis there. Um, and here we have the great middle skill cards. So these are the cards where the difference between the top tier and middle tier players is the smallest. And we have uh, Rona Shield that's faithful again. I think that this card just does really poorly with top players um, because uh, if they play it, that means that their blue-black deck didn't work out very well. And um, and that necessarily does not mean for the same for the middle skill players. And that's why they have Rona Shieldress Faithful having a decent uh, uh, win rate because they will end up in as a bad card in good blue-black deck 
and then the rest of the deck will carry it because people put it into their deck because of a mistake. Uh, while the top players will probably most of the time put Rona Shieldred's Faithful because of necessity, because they tried to force the blue-black and it, something didn't work well, and then now they have to scrap for playables and they have to play Rona. Um, Atraxas Fall. Now, this is a weird card in so many ways uh, because the middle-tier players have a whole 5 percentage points higher win rate uh, with Atraxas Fall than the top-tier players. And again, my only conclusion for that would be uh, it's a metagame kind of thing. But it also can be that the Traxxas Fall ends uh, in the decks of top-tier players only when it's basically the last playable that they needed to squeeze in into their deck, while uh, middle-skilled players will put them in a decent decks, and probably they shouldn't put the Traxxas Fall, but again, it will be somewhat carried by other cards in the deck. It's a different Rona, Gold Links. It's the bad Rona from Dominaria Knight, not the good Rona from the new set. That one is busted. Yeah, that's why it's so weird that this Rona Shieldred's Faithful is there. The other one is <clears throat> Herald of Invasion. Many Ronas, many Ronas. Um, Invasion of Gobakhan. That card is doing really poor with top-tier players, and I don't understand why. It looks pretty solid, uh, but uh, potentially it's just that the archetype is not so great with it, so that, that's why it does poorly with the top-tier players. Middle-tier players um, will get it excused by by putting the other things uh, and here on this list we we see like a bunch of naya cards uh ravenous sailback arachnoid adaptation uh, so that's a three four with haste or destroy artifact or enchantment and arachnoid adaptation is a combat trick seed storm the seed core another well not a combat trick but sort of overrun like effect captain lannery storm aggressive creature beamstone Beamtown beat stick and equipment with similar ability as Lannery Storm has. Uh, Nahiri is Warcrafting, like just a vanilla three mana deal five damage removal that is hard to cast. Um, so, yeah, I mean, um, these are the kind of uh, aggressively looking aggro cards, uh, I would say, in most cases. Oh, there's also Firection Gargantua, another card that. Probably top tier players will cut more often from their deck because six mana is quite a lot still. Um, while the middle tier players will play them in better decks on average, and that's why the win rate is higher in that group. Oh, not higher, very similar. But okay, these are the. Th this is the end of the uh, comparison of those uh, cards that are particularly working well with uh, with those lower skill level players or lower tier, well, lower win rate tier. I hate to like link win rates with the skill, but I mean there is definitely one. So it's it's really hard not to make that conclusion at some stage. It's just it's not win rate is not everything, but it's a very important way of distinguishing between skill levels, uh, in my opinion. Uh, okay, so we have the last part of the seminar today. It's all about battles uh, because this is a new mechanic, and I will I promise you a battle episode once the uh, full data of the set is going to come out. We're going to have all 36 battles analyzed, and we're going to have some meta trends about battles. But for that, I need a particular data set. What I could do here was looking at battle play prevalence uh, based on the use of the cards. Uh, I basically look at the uh, frequency of play. Uh, that's why I wrote mystery number here on the chart, because it doesn't mean anything. It's a relative uh, play frequency. Then interestingly, 
the play rate of battles, I only had 27 in my data set because um, some of them were just not played frequently enough to make it into the data. But the 27 um, battles that I looked at, uh, top players play slightly less battles than the bottom tier and mid tier players. With top and mid tier uh, difference is basically zero. And with bottom tier players, uh, uh, it's not far from zero, to be fair. It's like five, eight percent more frequently they play the battles, uh, the bottom tier players, which is not like a big number. So I thought, okay, so is there any qualitative difference? Uh, so I looked at all battles, that's the previous graph, but I also looked at the top 10 battles by win rate. And here we can see that top players played top battles way more frequently than uh, than mid and bottom tiers. And then I looked at the bottom 10 battles and the difference is even bigger. Uh, top tier uh, players almost never play those bottom uh, uh, win rate battles. And then uh, uh, bottom tier players play them uh, more frequently. So again, in terms of battles, we probably shouldn't be looking at general trends. It should be looked at case by case situation uh, because the battle of the invasion of Amonkhet is going to be played a lot by the uh, top tier players. I can actually look at it somewhere, maybe, maybe somewhere, who knows? Yes, we have the, all the battle data. So for example, invasion of Amonkhet will be played almost twice as frequently by the uh, top players compared to the uh, lowest, uh, lowest uh, tier players. Um, and I need to move some graphs to get the data to look at. Um, and for example, uh, a battle that has a poor win rate, like, of course, my Excel is stuck. Yeah. Um, like Battle of Kamigawa, it will be 50% more frequently played by the bottom tier players than the top tier players. And those differences are quite consistent. So almost every single top battle is going to be played more by, um, uh, by the top tier players and less by the bottom tier players. How did the number came about? I just came here for the maths. Um, I basically um, calculated the number of games played by each card in the set that is in my data set. And then I divided uh, uh, that number by the total number of games in the data for each tier. And then I multiplied it by a thousand so I don't have like a bunch of very, very, very small fractions. So that's how I came with this number, uh, just the win rate. Uh, it doesn't mean much because the, the those players are going to be hard to uh, convert to anything. But um, as soon as we get the proper public data set, I'm going to go deeper into that and I'm going to actually get some meaningful numbers on those cards. All right, but general story of the presentation. Go back to the first slides just to uh, make the conclusions. First of all, matching algorithm does not show any bias towards color combinations. Um, second of all, uh, it seems like uh, the bottom tier players are not really great in playing multicolor decks and maybe should start slower in learning how to play them rather than jumping into those because it is a hard thing that requires multiple level ups that they possibly don't have yet. Um, second of all, uh, the fact that a color combination is powerful when top players play it doesn't mean that this archetype is powerful when the bottom tier play it. Uh, aggressive strategies seem to be working very fine or maybe aggressive to mid-range creature-based strategies are playing better with the bottom tier players. Uh, and you have to keep that in mind while tempo uh, strategies like Demir, for example, or, or is it, 
are not doing so well with the bottom tier players because these strategies are slightly more difficult to play. So if you are a beginner player, uh, maybe start learning how to play tempo strategies slower because you might need extra level ups before you will be able to grasp the full complexity of those strategies. Um, basically, middle tier players, so people with 54% win rate or something, um, already know which color pairs are good and then and, and they can utilize well. Um, the bottom tier players uh, will have a problem with uh, getting the maximum of the top um, archetypes and are actually better in the bottom archetypes because their card evaluation, their playing skills, their deck building skills are more aligned with those strategies, even though uh, those strategies are in the format not as strong. But if they are stronger for the bottom tier players because they play to their strength and their ability and, uh, and, and, and to their understanding of how to play magic. Um, Top players know exactly when to play good colors and they uh, are very good at identifying when the weaker colors are open. Uh, middle, free, middle tier players, uh, they probably try to overdraft the top archetypes uh, a bit too often because they know that the archetype is good and they try to force it. Um, bottom players, there is very low link between their uh, frequency of playing particular color combination and the win rate of that particular color combination which means that they have a problem identifying um, uh, good strategies. They draft not based on the knowledge of the format, but based on what they see in the pack. They lack this like, above-level strategy, strategical kind of uh, thing. Um, bunch of cards, bunch of blue cards are picked by the top players because they understand that blue is strong. Bunch of weird cards are not picked by the top players because they know that they are hard, situational, and uh, maybe they play them less frequently. Uh, top players understand power. They pick a very small fraction of the cards very highly, and they don't pick a lot of cards uh, at all and don't, don't play it because they know that those cards are weaker. They will only play those cards when really pushed to doing that. Um, the, play, the cards that the top players pick are the best cards. The cards that the bottom tier plays play the most in relative to the top players and the middle players are their weakest cards. So they are either pushed to playing weaker cards or they actively select to play weaker cards because they don't understand which cards are stronger or weaker. Um, complicated cards do well with top players, but inversely, it might mean also that those complicated cards do poorer with the uh, middle to and, and bottom tier players. Uh, and maybe the complexity of cards are uh, hurting the win rate of those cards in those groups. Some cards are universally good and quite bomby, like Sunfall. There is very low difference between the win rate of Sunfall in the hands of the top tier player and the bottom tier player because the card does everything on its own. Uh, battles are played at roughly the same rate uh, between top, mid, and bottom tiers, but good battles are played way more frequently by the top players and top players also actively avoid playing weaker battles. They know exactly which ones are good, which ones are bad, and they play it accordingly. That's it. That's all we are having today. Uh, before we go, I would like to thank um, Seventeen Lands team, uh, Viral Misnomer, and Ale Baldini especially were uh, working heavy on getting the uh, March of the Machine online and getting the data to all of us. I would like to thank Fake Jake Brown. Oh, again, I put a slide with the mis. Uh, missed in the typo of their Twitter handle. 
but thanks to Jake, he's being an awesome help. I wish him all the best luck in the Pro Tour in this weekend or next weekend. It's soon now because uh, he's playing in the Pro Tour and yeah, all the best. Uh, I would like to thank my sponsor, mtgazon.com. I would like to thank my patrons, including the two new ones in Arya and uh, Numinman. And I would like to thank Asesku and Mana Junkie for the music uh, that I use in the podcast version of this seminar. So thank you. And with that, I'll see you next week. <laughs>